I was watching leaders and humans burn out severely. People were coming to me more and more almost for counselling and for boundary setting. I'm Sophie Bretag from Meta Leaders. I'm the kindness mentor. I think if you show up as you are and you are brave and honest and open, that then gives people the comfort and the um, ability to show up as themselves as well. And I think that that's where you create a deeper connection when, when they feel like they can be themselves. You go through those experiences and come out the other end and you go, wow, that's, you know, this is what it taught me and this is why I'm the human I am now and this is why I do what I do now. And, and I think if you can work through that and process um, things that sit deeply and, and have deeply affected you, but you're able to sit with those and, and see why they happened or try to understand why they happened and then work through that, then I think that gives you yeah, the opportunity to grow from it. And also known as the kindness leader. Yes. <laughs> How did that come about? Um, through the power of connection and realising that So, let's not keep you waiting any longer and turn through the pages of this open diary. I hope you are listening. Sophie. Ali. Childhood. Ooh, we're going straight in, are we? Mm. Fantastic. Uh, I'm an only child. Yeah. And I high achiever. And given the world by my parents, privately schooled, lots and lots of friends, um, but often quite lonely and seeking connection. And, you know, we're diving straight into the, into, the, into the deep right at the beginning. But I think that when you don't have siblings, often you become very creative. And so my creativity has certainly come out in the later years in my work. But um, connection and creativity are two of my top values. And I feel like from being an only child, that's where that started. Right. Mm. What do you think was one experience that to date shaped who you are mm. from your childhood? Is mm. there one? There's probably a few. Uh, the first one would be... Um, being in contact and being able to have a horse. Nice. Mm. So I spent my most of my, from really the age of seven right through till 21, riding and competing on horses. And so having that connection again with an animal and there's no other, there's no other sport in the world really where you actually are in close contact with such a big powerful animal and yet you have to work together as a team and I think that really taught me about being respectful, boundaries, being able to stand in my own energy but also being respectful of other people's and other beings' energy. Uh, so, And then also the power of um, competing and wanting to win and so that certainly shaped me in uh, where I want to be and where I have been in my life to be a leader and to compete but also to do it in a respectful, boundaried and kind way. Mm. So that was probably one of the big things that shaped me. Second was my parents um, separating and then subsequently getting divorced. But I was mm, 15 when that happened. And so that was a massive shift from 
what was essentially a very happy childhood to a separate family and my dad having another partner and really navigating the feelings and the emotions that come with being the only child amongst two parents that don't get along at all. So that was a really difficult um, process to go through. But I think for me, it taught me a lot around being resilient, um, knowing that I can rely on myself, but also learning how to ask for help and seek connection with other people for support. And that's certainly driven me in work and in life. So, yeah. Lovely. We'll get to the leadership part. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about your first horse. Oh, my first horse. His name was Kobe. And grey, of course, yeah, like every pony, every little girl's pony. It's got to be grey. We got him when he was only four years old and I was nine and I couldn't ride very well and he hadn't been trained very well. So we learnt together, which is not recommended. Let me just put that out there. If there's any people listening and they're going to get a pony or something for their child, (laughs) perhaps get one that's slightly more educated because there were a lot of falls. Um, But we learnt really really well together and it was about creating a partnership and putting the effort into that partnership and the time and the unconditional love on both sides and then the fun you know being able to pack my saddlebags with my snacks and my lunch and my water and the carrots for the horse (laughs) and be able to just take off for you know half a day my parents and I don't know if many parents would let people do kids do that now but being able to take off for a half day in the local reserve and, you know, go, you know, hiking up hills and take the horse's bridle off and let him graze and drink water and very much close to nature and that connection to quiet time and being grounded. And that, yeah, he was very special. We had him till he was 35 and my kids, I've got two boys, so my kids actually got to ride him as well so yeah and he's buried at buried at our family farm up at an area we call the magic tree my boys named it and so um yeah he was only put down a few years ago so what was his name kobe kobe yeah what did the relationship with kobe teach you in terms of you already kind of touched on this already in terms of the boundaries around when two people are on a learning journey together Mm -hmm. i think it's quite applicable in relationship as well as workplace where the rate at which you learn may not be necessarily the rate at which your partner learns or mm-hmm. your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also patience and understanding and empathy and openness. And I think no matter what relationship you're talking about, whether that's personal, whether that's with another animal, you know, even my dog, you know, she's 16 this year and there's, there's that time and that, that openness that you can give to the other person, the other being, whatever that might be or whoever that might be. When you talk about a relationship and the learning process in a workplace, I think it's much the same because it's about having that respect. It's about having that understanding. It's about trying to be open-hearted and minded enough to know that who you're meeting with won't have the same lens through which you see, might have different unconscious biases, will have definitely a different story. And so they will come at their life and their work probably quite differently to how you might. But it's in a workplace, you know, we want cohesion, we want collaboration, we want connection, we want productivity, we want people to work together cohesively. 
but it's about giving people space and the understanding to be who they are, to learn at their own journey, but then to be able to achieve the common goal. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. <laughs> There's a lot to it. So back to Kobe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I really didn't think today was going to be about my first pony, so I love this. <laughs> Did it ever feel different every time you jumped on Kobe's back for a ride on any given day? Yes, yes, because it depended what mood I was in. So, and that's the other thing with relationships, isn't it? Absolutely. Depending on how we show up in that moment, our energy is reflected back to us. So us discussing this now and having a conversation now, mm -hmm. the energy that we're all putting out will be reflected and reciprocated by the other human. It's the same with animals. So, but probably a little bit more so because they'll be really open about it, whereas a person having a conversation might not be so open about what they're thinking, what they're feeling and their response to your energy and what you're putting out. So, yeah, absolutely it was different and I think it really depended on how I was feeling on the day, how he would behave. And how did it generally <laughs> feel to get on Kobe's back and just amazing. ride? Free, freeing, amazing. So I used to ride a lot bareback. We used to go swimming together in dams, which probably isn't really that great, to be honest. I feel like that's probably not overly safe, but, you know, you do what you do when you're a kid. Um, yeah, really, really freeing and exciting. You know, gallop. there's no better feeling, I don't think, than galloping on a horse um, and the freedom of, you know, being bareback and being at one with another animal like that and really that trust that you've got, that you have to have because really... You can't argue with a 500-kilo animal. I mean, you can try. You can try and force them to do something, but you're not going to, you know, it's a bit like leadership, I suppose. Yeah. It's You can't, well, you can. You can force someone to do something. You can force a horse to do something, but it's not going to have the best outcome. It's not going to have the most um, comfortable, joyous, harmonious outcome. So, yeah. So it sounds like you have a lot of trust with Kobe. Yes. Do you find that trust in people? I do. I do. Um, I think I'm a very trusting and open person and it it's probably got me into trouble a few times only because I do like to believe that people are showing up the best that they can in the world and potentially they might not always be putting out the best of themselves. Um, but, yeah, I think in general I'm a fairly open book I don't think there's much that people can't see on my face <laughs> <laughs> and I probably don't have the best filter at times either so I feel like if I'm showing up as me if I'm authentic if I'm courageous and standing my I mean I'm definitely you can't miss me coming I'm certainly very bright um, and I'm loud so I think if you show up as you are and you are brave and honest and open that then gives people the hopefully the comfort and the um, ability to show up as themselves as well. And I think that that's where you create a deeper connection when, when they feel like they can be themselves. Mm. Love mm. that. Back to childhood. Oh, stop circling back. <laughs> <laughs> it was so long ago. <laughs> Being an only child, mm -hmm. and people often say kids that, are the only child tend to find it hard to share and learn the social cues that at all you would if you had 
siblings and you know, you have to share a toy. <laughs> Mom, she took my toy. <laughs> like I've done plenty of that. Yeah, no, my, um, ki- my boys are exactly like yeah. that. Yeah. How did you think that affected your your schooling period? Maybe that initial stages. Mm. Interesting question. Um, I don't love to share my food, which my husband is very annoyed at most of the time. Um, What's your husband's name? Jeremy. Should we share our food after this episode? Yeah, no, I will not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel that for me, having to rely on my own um, my own energy and creativity to create my own fun and to create my own world um, so that I didn't feel too lonely. Certainly through school that then made me very excited to meet people who had a completely different life to me. So my a lot of my friends had lots of siblings or they came from, you know, very busy, loud, fun families. Um, But with that came, and I still have that now, I I get uh, overstimulated a lot by too many people and too much social contact, even though I love humans in general. Um, But certainly when I was younger, um, the, the drive to win, the drive to be the only one that was receiving the accolade or the only one to be the best because I had always, I guess, been lifted up by my parents to strive to be the best. So I was doing all sorts of extracurricular activities like debating and I was in the A hockey team and I was playing tennis and I was in the equestrian team and I was swimming and, you know, I kind of did everything. So I probably did a lot more as an only child because my parents allowed me to kind of they ran me around everywhere to do whatever I wanted to do and try whatever I wanted to try and so that when I was at school then found it difficult to fail found it difficult to lose um was very hard on myself thinking why aren't I the best I've always been the best you know but then when you're an only child you don't really have anyone to compare yourself to so I look at my two boys so I've got a six and a nine-year-old and I look at my youngest son and he is like everything's high, fast and loud with him. He is just full on and amazing. But the way that he tries to compete with his older brother and wanting to be just like him and then I look at the difference between him and then our eldest who's very calm, cool, collected, cares for everybody but just very self-assured in his own self Um I don't think I, because I didn't have any role models in a sibling, I role modelled myself on the adult standard and so a lot of my communication was probably more adult than childlike at the time. So it really affected me in in striving to be the best was probably the biggest thing and not coping so well when I didn't. Hmm. Tell us an example of a time you failed at something and then how did you go around kind of processing that and the lessons you've learned from it as at whatever age? Probably one of the things that stands out, um, so I was a school prefect um, in year 12 and I found it uh, really hard and I probably have never shared this actually, so I don't know. 
the the people who were the school captain and the vice captain, I certainly struggled with not being in one of those roles and being only a prefect, which to be honest, there was only a few of us anyway out of the entire year. So my perception of failure was probably warped. You know, if I'm not at the top, I'm not the best. If I'm not at the top, then I've failed. So working through that really was um, finding other ways to succeed and then also do the best that I could possibly do within that role so that potentially down the track I could learn from those who were in those roles what they had that was different and that was obviously required of those roles and then role modelling myself on what I needed to to be able to reach that kind of level. Mm. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. <laughs> That's very interesting. Did you spend a fair bit of time with your family friends who were fairly older than you when you were a kid as well? Yes. I'm just very curious. Yes, absolutely. So a lot of, so my parents had me older. Um, they tried for eight years to have a baby and had multiple miscarriages and couldn't have anyone other than me. Um, and so a lot of my parents' friends had teenage children when I was younger. So absolutely I hung around with older older kids. Mm. Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from? It will help more than you know. Thank you. Another, being an only child, and which gave you a lot of space to be creative, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very obvious how you are now. <laughs> and, 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 the, and, the, and the work you do. But then you turn to 15, your parents kind of separate. Yes. Um, I'm curious to know what impact did that have on your view on relationships mm. and how, like how long have you been with Jeremy? I should know. 12, 12, 12 years. You've yeah. been married 11 years. Yeah. So how did that impact your view on a relationship in general? Heavily. Yeah. Heavily. Yeah, heavily. And my husband's one of eight children. So being an only child and then marrying into a really big family yeah. was a huge. Wow. And as I said, being overstimulated by too many people, the first few times we met, I was like, I have a migraine. I'm going to go and lie down. (laughs) You are all too much. Um, Certainly impacted me from a trust perspective. So um, I felt, I remember my parents telling me um, on the eve of, I think it might have been New Year's Eve actually, I'd never smoked a cigarette before, never had any alcohol before. And I remember my dad taking me for a walk on the eve of my, the beginning of my year 12 year Mm. and um he said to me I'm going to take you for a walk and um and I've got something to tell you and uh I was like oh okay like what could this possibly be obviously knowing that for a long time they hadn't got along but as a as a child or a teenager you never really you never want to think of your parents not being together because it's really especially as an only child you don't have any siblings to rely on for that support system so it's really your own the way you can only deal with it in your own way on your own and he took me for a walk and he said um your mum and I are gonna um we're gonna separate and I'm you know I'm so sorry and um I don't really remember much of the conversation apart from I remember I remember going back to the room and um I don't know my my mum and dad hadn't smoked for years and I don't know where I got the cigarette from I think there was some brandy random probably just an an old bottle of brandy somewhere and I remember grabbing 
the bottle of brandy, grabbing the cigarette, smoking the cigarette and just breaking into pieces. Like my whole world had collapsed. But he said to me at the time, we're not going to separate now. We're going to stay together for your year 12 years so that you can get through year 12. In hindsight, probably not. I know they were trying to do the right thing, but probably not from a a focus and stability perspective, even though they were trying to do that. It actually derailed me more and probably them trying to hold it all together and, you know, for for my year 12. And I still did, you know, quite well but probably not as well as I could have done and then for years after that because my um, dad left my mum for another woman and they're actually still together and beautifully happy and they're they're beautiful Um, but the way in which it occurred was certainly not a a happy or easeful process and uh, so being in the middle of that certainly um, I lost a lot of trust in in men I suppose, to be able to be there for you or that why would you stay together when you're not happy? And, and and I didn't really, I wasn't able to understand I think at that time and maybe for a long time afterwards about even though you're trying to do the right thing sometimes by staying together, um, if it's not working and you're role modelling that to your children or your child or people around you, that's what will become the normal. And so when I met my hubby, he he's amazing by the way <clears throat> shout me. out to jeremy shout out to my man <laughs> <laughs> he is my rock and so whenever there were times and even you know sometimes there still are you know wobbly moments and he's like i'm not going anywhere i'm literally not going anywhere this is us this is our life together you know we are a family unit and i'm and i'm here for you and i'm your biggest cheerleader and i think that Prior to that, the relationships that I had certainly were not of that makeup. And I, as soon as the things got hard or uncomfortable, <clears throat> excuse me, clearly my throat doesn't want to say this. Um, <clears throat> things where you know I would run, and I'd be I'd be like I'm out. It's all too hard. Like nah, mm. I don't want to get hurt. And so there was certainly a lot of um, hangover from that that situation for yeah. sure. Yeah, that must have been very hard, especially in year twelve. Yeah, it was. It was. And then my dad was diagnosed with uh, what's called multiple biloma mm. at the end of year 12. And he's still, he's been amazing. He's had stem cell transplants and all sorts. But um, I got, um, it, it was hard to see him go through all of that. And then the, yeah, it was like, it was a, it was quite a few years of, it was quite tumultuous mm. Mm, for sure. So year 12 mm. finishes mm-hmm. and what happens after? <clears throat> I took a year off and got glandular fever. Oh, damn. <laughs> damn it. Um, <laughs> I was meant to go and have a gap year overseas um, but decided to stay um, because of everything that had, had happened with my parents at that time. Um, my mum and I moved to the Adelaide Hills and mum being and the amazingly strong and resilient human she is she wanted me to be able to continue to ride and compete my horses and she um purchased a block of land which she still lives on now 60 acres in the hills and she proceeded to she'd only done a bit of work she'd been mostly a stay-at-home mum and she then knew she needed to have a you know money and income coming in and so she became a real estate agent and then worked these insane hours. But um, 
it was a really difficult transition. So she was certainly not very well through that mentally, being able to um, process through the, you know, her marriage crumbling and then having to take care of probably what was quite a bolshy teenager, I would imagine. I don't think I was overly kind at that time, um, trying to process my own feelings through the through the transition. So, yeah, so we live together and she and I um, are very close and very similar and we like butted heads quite a lot. Um, and I think I probably spent most of that time trying to numb the feelings. Yeah, yeah, so it kind of then opened a, a, a quite a few years of, of destructive behaviours after that, um, trying to run away from being the responsible one, being the ones, you know, stuck in the middle of, of two parents who weren't getting along, trying to work through hormones. I mean, who wants to be a teenager again? Not me. Worst ever. I really don't want to see my children going through that. Um, so, yeah, it was a really interesting, interesting time, Yeah. But then, you know, you you go through those experiences and come out the other end and you go, wow, that's, you know, this is what it taught me and this is why I'm the human I am now and this is why I do what I do now. And, and I think if you can work through that and process um, things that are, that well, that sit deeply and, and have deeply affected you but you're able to sit with those and, and see why they happened or try to understand why they happened and then, work through that, then I think that gives you, yeah, the opportunity to grow from it. So yeah. mm. so horse riding was a form <laughs> of escape for you at that stage it was. after year 12 by the yes. sound of it. Yes, absolutely mm. was, yeah. And horses still are very healing for me. They're um, beautiful animals. They really are. They really are. And I think actually one of my friends just, um, she has just, she's been sober the last two years and um, she was speaking to her group and there are quite a few trauma horse therapy businesses opening up and I think they've been around for a while but they're mm -hmm. starting to become more it's expanding yeah absolutely True. yeah and they're just such healing animals mm -hmm. yeah after the gap year mm -hmm. what did we do after that uh yeah. university nice what'd you study bachelor of technology um and didn't love it <laughs> But did it. Um, I think I probably drank my way through my first year of uni. I spent a lot of time at the Flinders University Uni Bar um, and really rebelled against being anything mainstream. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we all go through those situations where we're like, I'm going to be completely the opposite of the way that I've been brought up. I'm going to try all these new things and be a different person. And then you slow deviate back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's where, I, exactly. You feel like you circle back. Absolutely. You hit 40, like I'm 43 now, but you hit that kind of midlife and you go, oh, actually what I was, what I was as a kid and what I loved and what resonated with me and what I was in flow doing and, and how I loved to feel, I'm still that human. I just had to go through all that process to actually kind of pick out the best bits so that I could then become the best version of me. But absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a very interesting time. <laughs> University. So from a Bachelor of Technology mm -hmm. to Human Resources mm -hmm. at Synergy IQ. Yes, I Plus there, yeah. having Meta Leaders, yes. found, founding that. Yeah. What happened in that space? <laughs> uh, travel. Right. So went to Nepal. For a little while and um, spent a lot of time really just escaping but also exploring um, and my love of travel 
has never changed. My parents, I was very lucky. My parents took me traveling from the age of two all around the world. So um, certainly very lucky with that. But um, after uni, I was, I didn't want to do anything after that university degree. And so I ended up working for mum's real estate agency for a while, found that that was certainly not my jam um, and helped her with her business for a while and then moved on from that and then got into sales, so wine sales. So that was um, almost another form of escape. Like if I look back now, working in the wine industry was certainly um, a way to make myself feel better I was selling premium brands, you know, your Penfolds, your Wins, your, your your really beautiful wine brands. And there was almost I was chasing the accolade of I'm selling these amazing products, I'm working with amazing huge clients, I'm travelling all over Australia and really not focusing on what made me happy. But through that process, I found that my relationship building capability and my ability to connect deeply with people very quickly and have trusting, open um, conversations and get to know what people need very quickly uh, was one of my superpowers. And didn't love the sales bit because I can't sell people something I know they don't need. I just can't do that. So against my values. They don't need wine. No, they don't need pallets of it. (laughs) I mean, look, potentially... (laughs) But when you're kind of going in and going, oh, you don't need one pallet, you need three. We're not going to ask who you worked for. We won't ask who <laughs> well, you worked know, for. Well, you know, because I've given some premium brands. But-, <laughs> but no, I did. I certainly sold in, you know, a lot of wine that probably they didn't need to sell, which didn't kind of sit, it didn't sit right with me. Um, and then uh, through that time I met my husband and uh, he He's not one that always taken a break now, but he's a police officer, so um, has been for 16 years. And he got a country posting in um, far west South Australia, in Sajuna. And he said, oh, you know, you need to find a job over there. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I sell wine. I mean, I'm really going to sell what? I don't even know what I'm going to do. And he goes, oh, well, contact the local council, see if there's any work and I was because it's basically the only place you can work over there if you if you want a like an actual corporate position and a, a human resource I think it was advisor I think that was the yeah that was um the only job that was available at the time and I interviewed and I said I have no experience I don't have a certificate I don't have anything um and they said you're hired and I went bonus <laughs> <laughs> Because I I think what happened is they could see that I could talk to people and really at the heart of human resources is the humanness. And so you can learn all the, you know, industrial relations, employee relations, all of the return to work stuff, all the policies and procedures. Legalities of things and agreements, all the fun stuff. All the fun stuff, exactly, Mm -hmm. Um, which I actually do quite enjoy, surprisingly. It's not Mm -hmm. my, you know, my go-to. But, yeah, and so and then they put me through a certificate in HR while I was there. And so from there it really just... We had our first son and then uh, we came back to Adelaide to have him and then I started working in the aged care industry. So I went back part-time working in the aged care industry and was there for seven years. Mm. So, yeah. And then HR. HR, yeah, yeah. Yes. people and culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And also known as the kindness leader. Yes. <laughs> How did that come about? Um, through the power of connection and realising that particularly through COVID, um, I was watching leaders and humans burn out. 
severely. And as you know, the aged care sector was hit very hard by um, COVID. People were dying um, very regularly and trying to keep people safe, not only the residents but also the staff who are working within the sector, was a really heavy responsibility for a lot of leaders. And people were coming to me more and more almost for counselling and for boundary setting and for I don't know what to do I've got I'm coming to work and I'm taking care of aging people who I adore who are like my family I can't touch them because I'm in a mask I'm in a mask I'm in gloves they're people with dementia and they can't understand what I'm saying because they can't read my lips because they can't hear me or they don't remember and I can't repeat myself and so having people working in that sector was just heart-wrenching because it's people taking care of vulnerable people and they felt like they had nothing left in the tank to do that. And it was the same in healthcare, disability, any of the sectors that had vulnerable people at the end of it, childcare was the same. So it really came from me wanting to share more kindness in the world. And the more I did it, the more people wanted more. And then I saw other people doing it and it became contagious and people said, why aren't you doing, why aren't you doing this all the time? And I said, why aren't I? <laughs> and so that's where it was kind of born from wanting to support and help and care for those who care for other people. Mm. I'm in a moment. <laughs> yeah, you really just took me on this like emotional roller coaster. How do you find it being kind today post-COVID? Because I feel that we've forgotten what happened in the healthcare sector during COVID, to be honest. Um, it's a really interesting question. So I was speaking to a lady the other day, and she's it's not from the aged care sector, but she's from tourism. And her husband works as a uh, like a driver who takes people between the airport and to their hotel and she said post COVID he was he would get the occasional grumpy person at 3am when he would go and pick them up for the flight the, the international flight and she said since he's gone back post COVID or now we're sort of more on the tail end of it it would be 95% of the people are unhappy and lacking kindness and lacking empathy and lacking patience. But I don't think we can blame people for that either. I feel that we have been through such a traumatic experience as the world has tried to adapt to something that we've never, ever experienced before. And people have been pushed to beyond the point of being able to cope. So not only have they potentially not had work you know, they might have lost their job and they were trying to support their family or they were working in what was classed as an essential industry and so you had people, as I said, burning out, not coping, but then having to go home and not being able to touch their family members, having to isolate from their family members, potentially having ageing family members that they couldn't take care of because they had to go back into work. And I think that from that it has caused so much compassion fatigue within people 
that we don't have the tolerance for when things don't go smoothly. And it's almost like when you think about a business and it's probably it's I feel like it's quite similar when you're looking at change management or or changes within a business or a workplace. The fatigue that can come from people who are in a state of fight or flight constantly will get more short-tempered, will be unhappier, will be less empathetic, will be less kind because they don't have anything in the tank anymore and they're so sick of things not going right or not going smoothly or they don't know what's going to happen. So they're sitting in a state of limbo, which is what we've been sitting in with COVID. We don't know when it's going to be finished. We don't know, you know, we didn't know whether the the jabs would assist us. We hoped that they, you know, they would assist and help. But when you're sitting in that state constantly, you're exhausted and you've got nothing left to give. And so I think people have kind of tried to push what's happened to the back of their mind to just move on and get on with things and people say we want to be you know back to normal but i don't think you can be back to normal because you need a buffer through change what is of normal? nothing exactly what is normal hmm. what is normal was it normal before for people to be working and burning out within businesses and working like ridiculous hours was it normal to not have workplace flexibility flexibility yeah. as much as we've got now was it normal to be expected to go into the office every day of the week? And perhaps from COVID we've learned that being able to change and adapt and create more flexibility within that has become normal now. Touched on a good point about fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly a very common thing at the moment. Mm. People are overworked and they do work a lot. They do. The question is, though, how do you find kindness within you, even if you're fatigued? Because the demand on workers is very unlikely to change. Mm. I don't think it would change. We talked about this for a long time mm. now. Mm. Oh, people are tired. Mm. Yeah. It's not going to change. No. So what is my personal responsibility mm. to find that kindness within me, even though I'm tired and fatigued? Mm-hmm. And how, how do I get there and how do I... Spread that kindness, mm. regardless of my tiredness, I guess. Great question. Mm. I love that one. It's, it is our responsibility and it's not our responsibility. So there are two things there. I am hugely passionate about people being kind to themselves and self-kindness for me has been a game changer in the way that I lead and the way that I live. And it's come out of making the decision to actually show up for me first. And that might look different for everybody. So, for instance, self-kindness to me means meditating twice a day. It means drinking lots of water. It means not only setting physical boundaries around people who zap me of my energy but also energetic boundaries where if I don't feel like speaking to somebody on the phone, if I know that that energetic exchange is not going to be uplifting or equal, then I will use text message. So I set the boundary of I will message that person when it it feels appropriate 
in my own energy levels to deal with that interaction. In workplaces, it's harder to do that because you are there for a common purpose. You are there to show up and do your job and be productive and be on and be excited and, and you know, do all the things that the business requires of you. And so to find that kindness in your day, if you're showing yourself kindness first, so even if it's some deep breathing, some breath work, if it's, for me, it was putting plants in my office so that I had greenery, bringing the outside in, having workspaces and offices that have natural light coming in so that people are actually have access to sunlight. There are these small things that you can do that you can create space for in your everyday that will bolster your emotional levels and your cup and fill your cup first. Because if you are giving, which a lot of these industries are, And in every job, you're going to be giving a certain amount. You're giving your time, your energy, your brain power, your heart often. If you're not feeding yourself first emotionally, then you're not going to be able to give someone else something that you don't have within you. And it takes time. You're not going to be able to meditate, you know, on a one-off and go, I'm fixed. Emotional cup full, bang, ready to go. It's a commitment and a practice to ensure that the way that you're showing up for yourself first and foremost, that you are the most important being in your life and not feeling guilty about that, to then be able to give to other people, that's where you can find those snippets of kindness. And you don't have to go out and be jumping all over people and giving everything. You know, kindness can be something as simple as saying to someone, are you okay? Can I get you a cup of coffee? Would you like me to go and grab your printing off the printer for you? Would you like to have a half day? Would you like to come in late today? Do you, what do you need to feel good and healthy and show up? Because the more that the person feels supported, valued, seen and heard, the more they'll then pass that on to other people. And it becomes contagious. So taking care of self first, and as, and as much as that sounds selfish and as much as that is often hard, it's the incremental changes that we bring into our life to support our own emotional and mental well-being that then allows us to show up for other people within our world to then create the ripple effect of kindness. Also, I think there's a bit of a component of the compound effect Yeah. when you keep um, practising self-care yes and after a while you find that you may miss a day but you're still fine yes and i recently heard this analogy that i loved the girl was talking about a river a lake Mm -hmm. and a flower that grows within the lake which doubles every day Beautiful, right so the question is on the day 30th the lake is full of flower and what date was it half full Mm. What day was it? I don't know. Maths is not my strong point. <laughs> day, day, day 29 because he, ha- he doubled every day in the compound effect. It's true, yeah. Right? I love that. I'm like, this is I'm going to take good. that. Yes, you can I take like it. That. Shamelessly. <laughs> I, love, I love that. Yeah. That is such a beautiful analogy of making change in whatever form that's in. Yeah, and the compound effect. It is. It absolutely is. And... When it comes to taking care of yourself, 
you might not see, feel or hear the changes until one day you go, that conversation, I was able to give that person a little bit more of Mm. me or I felt really happy today. I got out of bed going, I feel good. And I think we underestimate the power of habit and the power of ritualising self-kindness and self-care to then be in it for the long game because you can't you can't be depleted and give to other people yeah i think that is a good segue to wrap things up sounds great um two questions though sure what is the best question i could ask you right now what makes me happy what makes you happy being able to speak to other humans heart to heart get to know them and find out what makes them happy so that we can create more happiness in the world together beautiful and the last question is from our previous guest for you surprise surprise (laughs) you may or may not memory was an easy one recognize the voice (gasps) throw me me the uh the curveball again i'm going to play this If you had a magic wand and could change anything about leadership, what would it be? Well, I certainly know who that person was. Um, If I had a magic wand, I would change the perception that leaders need to know it all to be able to lead effectively and for them to be able to trust their intuition to ask for help when they need it. Mm. Thank you, Sophie. So lovely. Thanks, guys. That was great. (laughs) Our stories are the building blocks of who we are and we hope this episode was the right trigger to reflect on your stories and how they made you who you are. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on whatever platform you are hearing this from. Until the next Open Diary.